Our reading today is Genesis 1:31 through 2:3. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This ends the reading of God's holy word from the book of Genesis. Well, I want to see if you can identify with this scenario. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. Don't embarrass you, but, but think about this scenario. See if you can identify with the following. It's been a tiring few months. The days have been long. The nights have been short. You've, you've lost track of how much overtime you've put in. The doctor says you need to exercise more. Your spouse says you need to sleep more. <laughs> you don't know how those two things are supposed to work together. Uh, wherever you turn, all you can see on many days is what is undone, unfinished, or screaming for more of your time and attention. And then, finally, it arrives. Wonder of wonders and, and glory of glories, the first day of your long-awaited vacation arrives. You've been saving for this particular trip for quite a while. It's a, it's a bucket list destination, which means the scenery is gorgeous, the food is delicious, you're with all your favorite people, none of your not-so-favorite people, doing all the things you love to do from dawn to dusk, it's seven days of work-free existence. And best of all, this particular destination has little to no cell phone signal. And that means that your boss is blissfully unavailable to you back home. Well, before you know it, the week flies by. And surprise, surprise, you're driving home again. But as the familiar landmarks catch your eye, a quiet heaviness, surprisingly, starts to grow in your heart. You suddenly feel just as tired as you did seven days ago when you first left town. And you think to yourself, I got plenty of sleep. I, I ate well, maybe a little too well. And the kids behave like, like angels, relatively speaking. So, so why am I still so tired? I, I did all these restful things. And I, and I paid a, a rather large chunk of change to do them, but I don't feel any more rested. I, I had such high hopes that after a week away from work, I would feel rested. But all I feel now is worse because that's now an unmet expectation. 
said I wouldn't ask you to raise your hand, but I can imagine there are some in this room who would if I ask, or your spouse would raise your hand for you if I invited them. (laughs) There are all kinds of reasons that we can have an experience like that. All our lives are different. Our situations and circumstances are not identical. I'm aware of that. But there are things we share in common as human beings who were all created in the image of God. And I think the experience I just described points to one of them, something we share in common. So listen carefully, friends. The rest we long to enjoy is not defined by the absence of work. The rest we long to enjoy is not defined by the absence of work. It's not something money can buy. It's not something we we create for ourselves. The rest that we long to enjoy, the rest we were made to enjoy, is a spiritual rest that comes only through enduring faith in Jesus Christ. When Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, he's not inviting us to the outer banks. He's inviting us to himself. He's calling us to a life of, of faith in him, of, of trust in him, of growing relationship with him, because then and only then will we experience the true rest of soul that we long to know. A rest that finds its origin in nothing less than the eternal rest of God himself. And it's that rest, that rest, the rest that God enjoys And that he makes a way for us to enjoy through the gospel that comes into view on the seventh day of creation. That's what this is about. But understanding that rest and and experiencing that rest doesn't start with thinking about rest, oddly enough. It actually starts with thinking about work. But I'm not talking about our work. I'm talking about God's work, the work God does. Listen, because it's in the beauty of the work that God does that we discover the path to the rest we need. It's in the work God does that we discover the path to the rest we need. So so let's begin where our text begins, where Charlene began reading, with the perfection of God's work. Point number one, the work God does is supremely good. Supremely good. Don't don't move too quickly. Past Genesis 1 verse 31. Look there with me. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. So think about that. Think about that. All all the things that God has made up to this point, mountains and seas and plants and trees and every animal that swims, walks, or flies, the the entire material universe, culminating in the creation of man himself, all of it, God said, was very good. There's no elevation here of the spiritual above the material. There's no sense of a a dualistic universe where good and evil are both present from the very beginning. 
Okay, all, all that existed, all that existed up, up to this point in the history of the world, everything in the heavens, everything in the earth, owed its existence to the creative handiwork of God. And because God is good, everything he created is good. And we know that it's good because God says that it's good. By the way, Genesis doesn't tell us, in this regard, everything we would like to know about the origin of evil. Where did evil come from if this entire created world as created by God is very good? We'll get to that more in chapter 3, but it does tell us that God did not create evil or personally bring evil to pass. All that he created is perfectly Good, but, but notice his work isn't just good, it's complete. Look at chapter two, verse one. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, all the host of them. Can, can you imagine saying that? Saying that yourself. Think about that. Looking over the entire universe, Everything outside our galaxy, everything inside our galaxy, you survey the entire earth and all that is in it and you immediately conclude, yep, that's perfect. No work left to do here. I mean, think about that. I, it struck me this week that I don't think I'm ever going to reach a point where I can say that about my little house <laughs> or, my, or my half acre little yard. There is always work to do. There's always something that is not exceedingly good. I, I, I've never reached this point where I, I look at all our property, all the things God's blessed us with, and I say, you know what? It's finished. Perfectly, completely good. And yet, God could survey the entire universe and say with the utmost truthfulness, all of it isn't just good, because you can have like a half-finished project that's good thus far, right? You know what I mean? It's not just good. It's finished. It's complete. He didn't just start the work of creation or, or set the work of creation in motion. He finished it. Verse one, thus the heavens and the earth were finished. Verse two, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. It is good church to recognize the many points at which we are not like God, where we cannot say what God says. But we can say this. I can say this, friend. He is the exact same God today. The exact same God today. Okay? If he starts a work, guess what? He finishes a work. If he begins a work, he completes a work. Not just most of the time or some of the time or when it's been a good quarter. All of the time. Every time. If he's, if he's begun a good work in you by, by giving you the gift of spiritual life through faith in Christ, that he has promised you that he will complete that work and bring you all the way home to glory. He's the same kind of God. And in Philippians 1.6, familiar verse, the apostle Paul doesn't say, think about this, he doesn't say, I am generally confident of this. Did you catch that? Or, or nine times out of ten, you can expect this. Or if I woke up on the right side of the bed and had really good coffee, this might happen. 
Now, what does he say? He says, and I'm sure of this. He's the same God. I'm sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Church, hear the Lord saying to you this morning through his declaration of the seventh day, I am God and that means that I always complete the works I start. And I always fulfill what I've promised to do. What God starts, God completes and everything he starts and completes. Everything he has done, everything he is doing, everything he will do. It's exceedingly good and completely perfect. God doesn't do B-grade work. He crushes it every time in all that he does. Remember that, friend. It's just so important. Remember that. You, You might not understand that. You might look at your life or or the world around you and think, preacher man, I don't get that. I I struggle to see that. You might not be able to comprehend the completion and goodness of his work. But, But this we know. If God's doing it, then we know it's good. And it's not just a little bit good or or partially good. It's entirely and completely good. If you could see what God sees, in other words, you wouldn't even be able to add to it or improve upon it because you would see what he sees and you would see that all that he does is perfectly good. We can't add to God's work or improve on his work. The work God does is supremely good. That's the first point. We have to see that. Here's the second point. Listen very carefully. God delights in the dignity of rest no less than the dignity of work. So where do we start? We started with work, not rest, right? That that all the work God does is supremely, completely good. Second, having seen that, God delights in the dignity of rest no less than the dignity of work. In in verse 2 of Genesis 2, something happens that I have been trying my best to wrap my mind around all week. What's that? And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested from all his work that he had done. Why why does that baffle my mind? Well, let me try to explain and draw you in on this, okay? What typically happens when you work six days straight? Yes, thank you, Mercy. You get tired, And even if that's a happy kind of tired, because there is such a thing, you can tell that your mind and your body need a break. You need a break. Well, what do we know about the Lord? We know he doesn't get tired the way we do. He doesn't need breaks the way we do. Why do I say that? Because God says that. Isaiah 40, 28, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Or Psalm 121, verse three, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So what do we know about the creator of the universe? We know he doesn't faint or grow weary, and we know he never slumbers or sleeps. What's that sound like? Not like us, (laughs) right? Not like us. 
So here's the million dollar question, okay? If God doesn't faint or grow weary and he doesn't slumber or sleep, then why in the world is God resting? That's what I couldn't get my mind around. Why is God resting? Think about that. Well, friend, he's, he's resting for the simple reason that his creative work was completely perfect and he delighted to do so. He's resting for the simple reason that his creative work was completely perfect and, and he delighted to do so. I, I think Alan Ross's insight on this point is, is really helpful. So speaking of this word rest, God rested, he writes, it describes the enjoyment of accomplishment, the celebration of completion. So, so God is resting because the creative work he finished is very good and as such, it's exceedingly worthy of being enjoyed and celebrated. That's what's going on. So, so Genesis 1 verse 3 clearly affirms that God is just as glorified then by rest as he is by work. So think very carefully about this. Why does God bless the seventh day? Why is it, what is it about the seventh day that reflects his own goodness and enjoys the smile of his favor? Why is it that God makes the seventh day holy? Why is the seventh day set apart for him and his purposes, magnifying the worth of his glory? What's well, very simple. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Look at verse three. Because, because, here's the reason, on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. That's why the seventh day is blessed. That's why it's holy, because on it, God did something. God rested. So think about that. It's the fact that God rested on the seventh day that makes it a day that is blessed and holy, which tells us what about rest? That God delights in the dignity of rest, no less than the dignity of work. So, so what does God say about the fruit of his work? He says it's what? Very good. Very good. What does God say about the day of his rest? It's blessed and it's holy. His work is very good. His rest is blessed and, and holy. What, what do some of us tend to think about rest? What do we tend to think? Well, we tend to think that there's inherently more dignity in work than rest. And this is the part of the sermon where I need to preach to myself, which made this uniquely difficult to prepare. So, we, I, feel valuable when we're working and worthless when we're resting. So what we do is not shocking. We, we try to work as much as possible and rest as little as possible. And while we would never say it aloud, internally, we intuitively respect somebody who works 70 hours more than someone who works 40 hours. So what sounds like complaining, man, I worked so much last week, is really a not so subtle form of boasting. 
and saying, yeah, I probably need to work less. It almost becomes this badge of honor. We, we, we view our work as the thing that increases the worth of our existence and rest as something that at worst undermines our value and at best gets us ready for more work. So are some of those behaviors driven by an idol of work where we look to our work to give us the identity and purpose in life instead of our relationship with God? Absolutely. All those behaviors, everything I just described, all those thoughts can be driven by an idol of work. But hear this, church. Wherever you find an idolatrous view of work, you will almost always discover, right alongside it, an unbiblical view of rest. They go hand in hand. So listen, rest, according to the Bible, finds its origin not in the pain and sorrow of our work, but in the goodness and completion of God's work. Rest, according to the Bible, doesn't find its origin in some sort of unfortunate necessity on the heels of the the pain and sorrow of our work. It finds its origin in the goodness and completion of God's work. And as such, it's an expression of his perfect character. It's not an unfortunate necessity. It's exceedingly good. Rest is exceedingly good. So so think about this. I I doubt any of you would ever say to God, at least I don't recommend saying, but, but I doubt you would ever say, hey God, you know that seventh day when you rested? Well, I think you just undermined the worth of your existence. You just lost some personal value points. You really, God, you really should have kept going and going and going and going until you keeled over because work's where it's at. We wouldn't say that to God, but we think like that. We think like that. Hear hear this, friend. The work God completed didn't add to the worth of his person and the rest God enjoyed didn't take away from the worth of his person. And guess what? As a creature made in the image of God, that means that like him, your work does not add to the worth of your person and your rest does not take away from the work of your person. Rather, both your work and your rest when done to the glory of God reflect nothing less than the image of your creator. Because when we rest, we're reflecting something of the blessed and holy character of God himself. A God who who delights in the dignity of rest, no less than the dignity of work. And, And to the degree our lives reveal a functional belief to the contrary. We don't need to go around telling our friends, yeah, I should probably work less. Friend, you need to repent. I need to repent. I need to repent of arrogantly claiming before God that there is greater worth and value in work than rest. Because to say that is to say God lost worth and value on the day he rested. And here's why delighting in rest, the way God does, is so important. 
If, if the second point reminds us that, that God delights in the dignity of rest, no less than the dignity of work, here's why delighting in this rest is so important, okay? This sets us up for point number three. God wants his entire creation, including you and me, to experience the very same rest that he enjoys. God wants his entire creation, including you and me, to experience the very same rest that he enjoys. Point number three, the work God completes enables us to experience the rest God enjoys. The work God completes enables us to experience the rest God enjoys. So so think about this. Something is noticeably absent from the description in Genesis 2, 1 through 3 of the seventh day. Noticeably absent. If you've been reading Genesis 1 up to this point, here's here's what's noticeably absent. And there was evening... And there was morning the seventh day. That absence is not an accident. That's intentional, okay? That's the author's way of telling us in clear terms that the divine rest in Genesis 2-3 never came to an end. It endured, it it continued. God started to rest from his work and God kept on resting from his work because everything God created continued to exist in a state of perfect goodness and completion. So, So the indefinite ending of the seventh day leaves us expecting that this divine rest Divine rest in in which the entire creation order existed would just continue forever. But sadly, that's not the case. And to jump ahead a chapter, in Genesis 3, the first man and woman decide to sin. So they they reject God's rule. They they forfeit God's blessing. And and the universe that that was once filled with the joy of divine rest now exists under the Condemnation of the divine curse. But God makes a promise to Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, a promise of salvation, a promise that he would work to make right all that our sin made wrong. And he he renews that promise with a man named Noah. He renews that promise with a man named Abram. And years later, he renews his promise with the entire nation of Israel. He he delivers them from slavery in Egypt and leads them into the promised land of Canaan. And that's a land that Moses describes in Deuteronomy 12, 9, listen, as the rest and inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. If we understand that rest... In light of Genesis 2, the rest Moses is talking about here isn't merely a promise of physical rest from wandering around year after year after year in the desert. Okay, it's also a promise of of spiritual rest, a a promise of restored relationship with God that Israel would, would know the rest of being God's people in God's place under God's rule. And, and as a sign of the covenant between them, God required Israel to do something. What was that? To set aside the seventh day of the week as a day of physical rest. Exodus 20 verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is one of the moments in this sermon where we have to do some serious thinking. Serious thinking. So if you're prone to fall asleep, ask somebody to elbow you. (laughs) Think carefully, listen carefully. It is good to think to the glory of God. So think with me about this. The Sabbath was a physical sign of spiritual dependence on the Lord. So for the Israelites who had ears to hear, it served as a weekly reminder To hope not in their work or their power to save themselves, but in God's work and God's power to provide and save them. That's what that was about. And that's not surprising because after all, that's precisely what the first seventh day was about. Right? God-centered joy in a work that only God could complete. So by commanding Israel to to follow his example, that was God's way of inviting Israel to share in his joy. A joy that required Israel to rest from her work and trust his work. And if she was willing to do so, she would experience something of the divine rest that God himself enjoyed. Exodus 31 verse 13. Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know, listen, that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Israel had no power to sanctify herself. No ability to make herself holy. Only God could sanctify her. In other words, only God could restore all that sin had made wrong and lead her back into the restored relationship with him characterized by divine rest. Only God could do that. The spiritual rest that we were created to enjoy, friend, and that the outer banks will never on their best day give you is the spiritual rest of reconciled relationship with the king of the universe. It's that relationship that God made you for that alone will give you rest in your soul. And in a real sense, the physical rest of the Sabbath, it pointed forward to the spiritual rest of the gospel. Why do I say that? Why do I say that? Because it's ultimately through faith in the person and work of Christ that God sanctifies us. That that he makes us holy as he is holy. And and we experience the divine rest that God created us to enjoy. So, So listen carefully. As God, through the author of Hebrews, he compares the Israelites under the old covenant to you and me as the people of God today. And he identifies faith, trust in God, as the key to experiencing God's rest. Listen to this. Hebrews 4 verse 2. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them. 
because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. There's a strange phrase. That so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. You do a whole sermon on that alone. <laughs> but here's the point. Here's the point, okay? Think about it. How do we strive to enter the rest of God himself. We do that, friend, by resting from works of human merit as an attempt, a futile attempt, to make us right with God. And instead of that, instead of works of human merit, we cease those, we rest from those, and we cling wholly to faith in Jesus Christ. That is how we keep Sabbath. Hebrews 4.14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So it's our confession, our faith in the saving work of Jesus that he accomplished through us, for us through his life, his death, his resurrection, that enables us to experience and enjoy the very rest of God himself. So what does that mean? Well, that means that, that like the entire rest of the Old Testament law, the fourth commandment to remember the Sabbath day, we have to interpret that and understand that in light of the gospel. We have to. And the author of Hebrews helps us recognize that, that on this side of the cross, we do not, listen, we do not fulfill our duty of Sabbath observance by physically resting on the seventh day of the week. We fulfill our duty of Sabbath observance by clinging to faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. That's what Hebrews is saying. And, and it's to him and him alone that we look to find the spiritual rest that the old covenant seventh day ultimately pointed to. That day, that physical rest, was not an end in and of itself. It was a signpost, like a neon flashing light. Look to that day, look to that day, look to what day? Look to the day that God would do all the work that is necessary to restore our relationship with him so that we could enter nothing less than his rest. We're done with the hard thinking part. <laughs> Good job. Good job. But that raises to conclude, friends, a very, very important question. Very important question. And what is that? What's the question? If the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, no longer applies to us in the same way that it applied to the people of Israel, why has the Christian church traditionally gathered for worship on Sundays. I'll say at the outset that this is an issue on which faithful Christians have argued a lot. <laughs> and I did a lot of reading this week and listened to a lot of arguing. But what I want to do here 
is for the sake of time and serving you, simply share what I believe is clearly taught in scripture and nothing more than that. So, three points to answer this question. First, we have some biblical evidence of Christians meeting on the first day of the week, Sunday, or the Lord's Day, Revelation 1.10, in honor and celebration of the day that Jesus rose from the grave. That makes sense. And so there are good reasons for doing that, the historic practice of the church among them. But please hear this. Nowhere in the New Testament will you ever find a Christian explicitly commanded to treat Sunday any differently than every other day of the week. You won't find that. And go look for it if you have trouble believing me. You won't find it. Second, there's nothing in the New Testament that instructs us to observe the first day of the week, Sunday, as some sort of Christian Sabbath or day of physical rest in the same way that Israel observed the seventh day as a day of physical rest. In other words, Jesus does not simply change the day on which we celebrate the Sabbath. He is the one to whom the entire institution pointed. There's a difference. It points to Christ. The seventh day doesn't point to the Lord's day. It points to Christ. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. And yet, we have to recognize that as physical creatures, finite human beings in a material world, physical rest and sleep is an essential expression of humility before God. Psalm 127 verse 2. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep on Sundays. Actually not. I sleep less on Sunday than any other day of the week. No, he gives to his beloved sleep. In all times. All days. That that promise is just as true on Sunday as it is on, on every day of the week. So, is there wisdom in developing a regular structure of physical rest to keep you healthy and able to love God and love your neighbors? Yes. Yes, absolutely. But nothing in scripture requires that we physically rest from our labors on a certain day of the week. Nothing in scripture requires that. Third, if we keep the fourth commandment and enjoy God's rest through faith in Christ, please hear this. Gathering regularly with the people of God for worship becomes more important, not less important. I'll say that again, because this is where we go off the rails, okay? If, if we keep the fourth commandment and enjoy God's rest through faith in Christ, gathering regularly with the people of God for organized worship becomes more important in that process, not less important. Why do I say that? Why do I say that? Because I don't need much help from any of you to physically rest. In fact, if I want to physically rest, all y'all have to go away, <laughs> But I desperately need the face-to-face community of the local church in order to help me persevere in faith in Christ. Desperately need that. Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another 
every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Or Hebrews 10, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. What's that? Keep Sabbath by trusting Jesus. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So what does that mean? Think about it. Is there ever a day, let alone a week, where you don't need to be exhorted to hold firm to Christ? You ever found one of those days? Found one of those weeks? I haven't. Is there ever a day or a week where you don't need a brother or sister in Christ to stir you up to love and good works? No. No. I would argue that clinging to faith in Christ is significantly harder than observing a whole day of physical rest. In other words, keeping Sabbath today is a lot harder than keeping Sabbath was back then. And it's downright impossible, apart from the regular gathering of the saints in the community of the local church, because that is God's appointed means of keeping our faith on Christ and growing in Christ. So trusting Jesus as our Sabbath rest doesn't turn turn the church, please hear this, into an optional weekend event. It makes participating in the life and worship of the local church a matter of life and death. Because it's the people of God that God will use more than any other means as they speak the word and bring the word to bear on your life to keep your faith focused on the person of the Son of God. You need the people of God if you're going to trust the person of the Son of God. Which is why church membership is so important. And our Sunday morning meetings are most important time of the week. It's not because there's something special about Sunday as a day. Though I love the fact that that we can celebrate the resurrection of our Lord on Sundays. It's the most important time of the week because something supernatural happens when God's covenant people gather to read the word and pray the word and sing the word and preach the word and participate in the word through baptism and the Lord's Supper. You know what's happening every Sunday morning as we're gathered here from start to finish? King Jesus is strengthening your faith that you might endure to the end and not miss God's rest. That's not a light thing, friend. That's an eternally significant thing which is why you participating in the life of your local church is critically important. Not because Sunday is special, but because faith in Christ is essential. So if you get in the habit of staying home on Sunday morning or attending only when it's convenient, please know you are not just missing a meeting. You are missing out on the most important work God is doing in your life. Increasing your enjoyment of the salvation rest that he has granted you in Christ. All of history is moving toward this goal. Sharing in the divine rest of of God himself. And and that rest is a rest that we know now in part 
through faith in Christ and a rest that one day when he returns, we're gonna know in full. But hear this this morning. The church, including our Sunday gatherings, that's God's appointed means of getting you across that finish line. The work he does is supremely good. He delights in the dignity of rest, no less than the dignity of work. And it's the work God does through Christ that enables us to experience the rest God enjoys. So here, friend, more than anything else this morning, hear your creator saying to you these words through Christ. Come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Lord, we've covered a lot of ground today. But I thank you for the central message that you, Jesus, are our Sabbath rest. And I pray, Father, right now as we we sing this song in response to your word spoken to us, that you would help us to obey your word by resting and ceasing from our anxious toil of trying to merit your favor or prove our worth to you. And that instead of working, we would start resting. Resting first and foremost by trusting you, Jesus, to lead us into God's rest. And then I pray that the rest we find through relationship with you, God, would deliver and free us from looking to our work for what it can never deliver and devaluing our rest when you have said it is exceedingly good. I pray that in our work and in our rest, we would be a people who image you and show the world that real rest is not found on vacation. It's found through faith in Christ. Do that. Amen.